Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A growing body of research confirms the link between nature and physical, emotional, and mental health. However, questions remain about how and why nature yields these benefits. Nature and Human Health Utah is a new collaborative group comprised of scholars, educators, practitioners, and community members, which is sharing ideas and implementing solutions in this area. Today, Dorothy Schmalz, uh, Interim Chair and Associate Professor in the University of Utah Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism, and one of the leaders of the group is uh, joining us. Dr. Schmaltz uh, studies social stigma and prejudice as they affect health, behavior, and treatment, and interconnections of recreation, nature, and well-being. Dorothy Schmaltz, uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to it. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. A very interesting new uh, collaboration. Uh, understand this is uh, modeled after a similar group uh, at the University of Washington. Is that the case? Yes, that is. We were inspired by them and some of the great work coming out of their organization. And to be honest, the way they were formed was also pretty inspirational. They uh, kind of got going just coming up with ideas around shared interests and over beers at a bar and hanging out and formed a research collaborative. And as I say, some great work has come out of them. And we thought we could do the same thing, kind of, you know, do the similar things coming out of Utah. Uh, Sort of organic collaboration then, various people getting together around a bar. Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly how it happened. And uh, yeah, it grew into something really spectacular. And that's kind of where we came from. Although we didn't come up with the idea the same way. (laughs) <laughs> uh, right, <laughs> not the same way. That would have been more enjoyable, but uh, you'll, you'll model after that. Maybe, but yeah. 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 Um, so uh, you and your your leaders, uh, the co-leaders of the the group, uh, wrote a, an op-ed piece uh, in the Desert News end of last year. Uh, by the way, the co- the other leaders, Nalini Nadkarni and Tim Brown. Nalini Nadkarni is at the University of Utah as well, right? And uh, Tim Brown at the Tracy Aviary, I understand. Yes, yes. Nalini is an emerita professor here from the Department of Biology, and Tim, of course, is still very active as president and CEO of the Tracy Aviary. So uh, as part of that uh, op-ed, and we'll get into some of these areas later, you'd say it's time to raise awareness about the health benefits of nature, take actions to protect nature, and enhance accessibility uh, to nature for all. Uh, So we'll get into that. But first, I'm interested in a bit of your background. You know, I could imagine if you're in this area, but sometimes it happens, sometimes not, that you were outdoorsy growing up. Was that the case? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I do enjoy getting outside. Uh, most of my outdoor engagement was kind of in the backyard, but then when I was a tween, I started going to a summer camp in Vermont, and I think that's my largest sort of outdoor influence as a child. Yeah, where did you grow up? I grew up in central Pennsylvania. I was okay. uh, My father was faculty at Penn State, so I was a faculty brat. Yeah, yeah, uh, there you go. In central Pennsylvania. Uh, but we, his family was from New England, and my mother had some connections up there as well. So we spent a lot of time on the beach in Maine and, and in the woods of Vermont when I was young. So uh, how did you come to choose this field? What was, your, what was your thinking? You know, that's an interesting – I'll try not to get into too many of the nitty-gritty details, but uh, I was sort of doing the ski bum, working at a ski shop, waiting tables in Vermont, and my mother, after – college and my mother said you know you really need to get a master's degree to you know get anywhere (laughs) and so uh one thing led to another i didn't know what i would get a master's degree in i wasn't passionate about history which is what my undergrad degree was in and i had moved to vermont because of my love of this summer camp that i had been associated with for so long and she said why not parks recreation and tourism that's you love parks and recreation you're interested in the development that happens in out of school time and summer camps why don't you look into that? So I went back to Penn State and met with the faculty in the recreation department at Penn State and learned that this is an academic discipline where you can students can major in it, and there are lots of really exciting careers that come out of parks, recreation, and tourism. So no, uh, previous to University of Utah, you were, you were at Clemson, right? Yes, I was at Clemson for 12 years, I guess technically 13 years, uh, and then got a position here as a visiting scholar and secured a more permanent position in 2018. So uh, (laughs) 
this is not going to sound good uh, for me. Um, (laughs) And it's going to sound very prideful. Of course, we have a barrister of riches here in Utah. So (laughs) what's going on in South Carolina then with in terms of recreation? I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff. Yeah, there are some, there's some great outdoor recreation in South Carolina. And, you know, to be fair, coming from the Northeast, I, I kind of agree. When I first moved to South Carolina, I was like, what's in South Carolina? You know, people think of Charleston. Uh, they go right to the coast and uh, Myrtle Beach, what have you. But Clemson specifically is in an area called the upstate of South Carolina, which is the northwestern corner. It's about two hours from Atlanta and about an hour and a half south of Asheville. Uh, it's in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and there is some, you know, the Chattooga River is there, which is a wild and scenic river and some of the best whitewater kayaking east of the Mississippi. Uh, and there are some man-made lakes, lakes in that area. In fact, one of the things that made it very hard for me to leave that region uh, was all the sailing I was doing while I was there. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, so that's there's, there's some great hiking, backpacking, all kinds of you know, wonderful things to do that are outdoor recreation related in the upstate of South Carolina. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, so what did you think when you had the opportunity to come out to Utah? Had you been? Uh, I had been. I have friends out here. Uh, so I had visited. Uh, and I had, when I visited, I remember kind of imagining, what would it be like to live in Salt Lake City the way you do when you visit new places? Uh, but when they called and said, we have a position in the department that we'd like you to apply for, I have to admit, a lot of the stereotypes I think that people have about Utah came through my mind. You know, I kind of thought, what's in Utah? Maybe the same thing you think when you think of South Carolina. But uh, when I got here and I looked through, you know, looked at it through eyes of, wow, I could, li- I could actually live here, I just fell in love with the area. It's just so beautiful. The people are so friendly. Uh, and the outdoor recreation opportunities are, are really unprecedented. So it was kind of a no-brainer for me to, to take the leap. My family is still east, so it was a little tough in that regard. But South Carolina, or not South Carolina, excuse me, um, Salt Lake is so accessible. It was easy. It makes it easy to get back and forth to visit family. Before we get into some of the science, so it's, again, a personal level, what do you like to do? What do you, what do, you do? You're sailing in uh, South Carolina. What, what do you do in Utah? <laughs> Uh, you know, I've recently, uh, I have a boyfriend who's very into camping and backpacking and hiking. So he's gotten me more and more into that and is very supportive of, of my learning more about backpacking and, and camping. Uh, and I have a dog who gets me out. So that I think is my primary focus for outdoor recreation at the moment. Uh, before he came into my life, it was more laid back, you know, day hikes with the dog, um, exploring the canyons, that kind of thing, on a much more casual basis. But these days, it's a little bit more, I think, intensive with the hiking and backpacking Yeah, with yeah. his presence. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a nice nice activity. Uh, so, so, I don't know if there's science about this, but I could just imagine anecdotally, you know, a, a dog will probably get you out more, you know, speaking of people in general. Yes, a dog is a great way to to get outside. If anybody does have questions or concerns about getting outdoors, a dog is a great way to just get out on a regular basis. And there is science that indicates even just going for a walk around a neighborhood, if you're fortunate enough to live in a walkable neighborhood, uh, just walking a dog around a block is is great for stress relief, uh, cognitive engagement, productivity, all kinds of things. So, you know, I think it's difficult sometimes when we're you know, focused on getting something done for work or, you know, in my job, I have to do a lot of writing. And sometimes that, you know, first paragraph is hard to get off, you know, get down and uh, get your thoughts clear. And it it seems contradictory to walk away, (laughs) go outside, get some fresh air. It can really start those cognitive juices flowing and you can get, you can bust through that barrier that might be keeping you from being productive. Yeah, so I do have some questions about the, this this connection, right, between nature and physical, emotional, and mental health. Uh, that, I guess that's mm-hmm. the first one. It doesn't have to be green space necessarily. Just get outside. That's the first step. Yep, just get outside. In fact, there's some evidence that even bringing the outside in is valuable. Uh, bring some plants inside. I've said, and I think I might have mentioned it in the op-ed, but some other things that have been published around the University of Utah here 
it's you know I'm not great with plants, and I'm sure there are people out there who might be thinking, hmm, plants are not my thing. I have kind of a brown thumb, but there are some plants like succulents that can really withstand some neglect, but have been shown to provide similar benefits to people just by you know being near you in the house. So just bring some plants in. Yeah, I guess that could be the, yeah. the first step. Uh, just getting outside, you say, you know, clear your mind. Um, mm-hmm. When we talk about uh, nature, uh, it's, I don't know, is a city park, is, is that as effective, uh, a, if we're going to call it a treatment, or you know, on emotional, mental, and physical health, as uh, getting out in the wilderness? Yes, it is. There's some evidence within the urban planning and design uh, discipline. They're trying to investigate, okay, does canopy matter? Does, you know, how far a park, you know, can you get away from a road or road sounds in a park? So if you look at the differences here in Salt Lake, where I live, uh, we have Liberty Park, which is, I think, about a mile around, um, but you never really are away from really busy roads. There's some nice canopy there. Um, you can reap the same benefits from getting out in that, but they're not quite as robust as an area where you can really get away from those urban, that, that environment, those noises, um, the, the lack of canopy. Uh, so if you can get up into the canyons or do something that's really deep into wilderness, I think that's a that's showing a little bit more evidence of support. Um, but it, as I said, even walking your dog, just getting out in a walkable neighborhood is advantageous and can show some positive outcomes. What's the research on, you know, small dose, large dose? We're going to, you know, to use the medicine analogy. Yeah, well, you're getting into some really interesting questions there. That's, you know, one of the things uh, that we don't really know a lot about. And for different people, dosage is certainly different. So just like any kind of medication, if we're thinking about this as a prescription, um, dosages differ for different people. We're all, we all have our unique makeup and our unique chemistry. So researchers now are trying to identify, all right, well, how much time out in nature seems to really show the greatest reward. Uh, And right now, the best evidence we have, there was a publication that came out in 2019 that indicated about 120 minutes a week. So on average, what does that up to be? I think it's, you know, 15 to 20 minutes a day uh, seems to show the greatest benefit. Uh, And in their research, anything more than that didn't seem to show any more benefit. So to keep it with it, you know, if you can get at least that, you're probably getting what you can, you know, the best possible. There was another project that came out of Cornell not too long ago looking at college student mental health and their exposure to nature as a means to to help with college students and their health. Uh, And they found similar amounts of time were the most beneficial. Um, And they also suggested, unlike some evidence on physical activity, where people are encouraged to, you know, if you can do 10 minutes here or there, as long as you get 30 minutes a day in, that's, then you'll get the same benefit. Uh, what we're finding with nature is that really you need to be consistent. Get out and get that full 15 to 20 minutes. Don't try to chunk it up into small amounts if you, if you can. If you can carve that out of your day, you'll have more reward if you get it in a solid chunk of time. Mm-hmm. Consistency, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so uh, your backyard, uh, you know, say you're a gardener, do you get the similar benefits? Yes, you do. Uh, in fact, there's some recent evidence that shows people who actually have their hands in the dirt are more likely to show what we call pro-social behavior and environmental concern. So if they actually are engaging with nature like gardening, they are more likely to show um, environmental awareness and advocacy for the natural environment. Uh, so, you know, there's this sort of symbiotic relationship that we like to see where if you're out there in it, then maybe you will also advocate for it. Um, because it, you know, humans benefit from nature, but nature benefits from humans and our care as well. So to what degree can we try to keep this cyclical relationship going is something we're also focusing on as part of our nature and human health Utah group. 
I'm going to run something past you. I, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to shoot me down, but this this will be helpful to my friends if if you, if you answer correctly. Um, I'm I'm not a I'm not a big hiker or backpacker or you know, and I, so I joke with my friends. My dose of nature is to you know roll the window down while I'm driving through. Is there is there is is there any benefit at all? Um, you know, I I have to admit I don't know. I don't know if anybody's looked specifically at that. But the idea of breathing fresh air and, you know, getting away from especially our screens and doing something else is, you know, shows that there's benefit for how we function. So I would say, yeah, probably better than nothing. At least some, yeah. uh, there's, some in- <laughs> there's some interesting uh, data coming out of mostly age like Japan, Korea, Asian countries. Uh, they're looking at something called phytoncides. Um which are essential, they're essentially, they're essential oils. They're an organic compound that are released by plants. And they, the argument is that when we breathe those, we, our, our physiological makeup actually changes. Um, and in, their, in that case, they're arguing that our bodies produce natural killer cells, which are immune really T cells that help fight uh, inflammation and di- chronic disease. Uh, so if you're driving along with your window down, you're more likely to get some of those fighting sides. Oh, great! So well, there you go. <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna cite Professor Smalls then with my friends <laughs> for some evidence there. Yeah, I'm not good, sure how good, that'll yeah. go, but okay, go <laughs> for go. it. <laughs> well, let's, so we're overdue for a break. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to get into uh, more specifics on what some of the health benefits are. Uh, with okay. connection with nature. So we're talking with Dorothy Smalls. She is uh, interim chair and associate professor in the University of Utah's Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism. She's one of the leaders of a, a group called Nature and Human Health Utah. It's a collaborative group um, which is sharing ideas and implementing solutions in this area of uh, connection between uh, nature and physical, emotional, and mental health. More following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Salt Lake City Weekly. A Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. And science reporting on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators, one story at a time. Did you know that a community-driven and culture-centered approach can increase science and technology engagement among Native American youth and elders? Embracing cultural wisdom in scientific study reduces marginalization of Indigenous peoples and highlights the cultural, political, and historical roots of science itself. For many Indigenous peoples, science is recognized as intertwined with culture, a perspective that enables tribes to preserve important cultural and historical stories using innovative technology and design. Understanding more about how people learn with technologies and how this learning impacts their identities can inform researchers, educators, and designers who focus on the intersection between culture, science, and technology. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. We're talking about the link between nature and physical, emotional, and mental health. A growing body of research confirms this link. And um, we are talking with Dorothy Schmaltz, who is Interim Chair and Associate Professor in the University of Utah Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism. She's one of the leaders of a new group called Nature and Human Health Utah. It's a new collaborative group working in this, uh, this area. Um, you can find them at, uh, uh, let's see, what is the... Uh, Website natureandhumanhealth.org. Nature and Human Health Utah.org, yes. Um, because there is another group at University of Washington. Um, so, Professor Small said, let's get into some of the, the benefits. What are some of the benefits that we know of, with uh, being exposed to, uh, to nature? Um, well, generally speaking, just getting out in nature, we are more physically active than we are if we're not out in nature. Our houses tend to encourage sedentary behavior. So getting outside, we see more physical activity, and so 
that's a, a natural link. Uh, but we're also seeing connections, especially with mental health. Uh, the more time you spend outside, the lower risk you have of anxiety and depression. It's a great treatment for reducing some of those mental health issues, which we're seeing, which are so prevalent right now, especially as we continue to fight the pandemic. Um, but some of the other, you know, we're also seeing physiological outcomes. We see reduced chronic stress and inflammation. Uh, we see lower risk of the comorbidities associated with weight gain and overweight obesity. Um, but that's also associated with the physical activity link. Um, we also see greater social connectedness. There's people feel more connected to their community. So we see less loneliness among people who are more active outside. So there, I mean, it touches on, if your listeners are familiar with the um, wellness wheel, nature really taps into a number of those different dimensions within that overall wellness and well-being um, approach to integrative and complementary health. One other thing that uh, stands out to me here in this op-ed, uh, you and your co-authors mention uh, views of nature, even sounds of nature, being out in nature uh, can speed healing from physical trauma. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, just before the break, you were, albeit somewhat jokingly, asking about opening a window when you're driving. Uh, there is some data that shows even seeing nature, having access to a window and having trees or greenery or, you know, here we are out in the high desert, um, even a desert landscape uh, shows higher or faster recuperation post-surgery for people who are in hospital uh, and also higher success or performance for students who are in schools. So in, in studies that compare looking out a window and seeing a concrete wall, for instance, uh, or not having a window in a room, either a school room or a hospital room, versus seeing nature out your window, nature has the highest performance and recuperation rate. Do, do, we, have some, do, do we have some ideas of why nature does this, what, you know, what the link is? You know, there are several different theories that uh, scientists are using to frame studies around nature. Um, one of the earliest was produced or suggested by a scientist named uh, E.O. Wilson, and he argued that we are naturally connected. His theory is called biophilia, uh, and he contended that we we come from nature, and so that's where we are, that, that is our natural place. Uh, and so we find it calming. We find it, it just like going home. Nature is our natural home base, to put it, you know, most simply. Uh, there are some other um, theories. The Kaplans have produced uh, attention restoration theory, that there's something about being out in nature that, again, the calming, the stress relief that we experience when we're out in nature, the soft they, they, one of the primary tenets of that theory is soft fascination, that we're not overstimulated when we're in nature, and the soothing sounds of the birds or the water or the wind in the trees, along with the diversity of things we have to look at, are just stimulating and aesthetic enough that we are awakened, our senses are awakened, but we're not overstimulated the way the built environment can overstimulate us. Uh, so when we get overstimulated within our built environment, uh, we start to lose attention and we have to, you know, go into the theory suggests that we have to go into nature, flatline, if you will, kind of reduce our stimulation, relax, reduce that stress, and then slowly our nature, you know, exposure to nature can help us restore our attention and our ability to, to focus on things. Um, and then Ulrich, who was a student of the Kaplan's, produced stress reduction theory, and he has looked at, you know, how nature actually serves to help reduce that, our, our chronic stress, which so many of us experience in today's society, and our glorification of busy mm -hmm culture that we have where we're just constantly connected. We never seem, or we are reluctant or reticent to put our phones down, put our laptops down. And now we have it, you know, we have, we're connected on our wrists with smart watches as well. Now we're just constantly connected. So how do we reduce that stress? Um, and he contended that through nature, we're able to, to reduce stress. <laughs> 
boy, uh, needed even you know more today and more and more, right? Because we're, as you said, mm-hmm. we're we're so distracted, we're so overstimulated. Uh, when you started talking about that, I was, I was thinking about kids, and then then my mind went to adults, me, right? We're we're yeah. all over overly stimulated and distracted. Yeah, um, we really are, uh, and. There's some within the recreation and leisure field, and yes, my degrees are in leisure. You can tell all your friends that I'm a doctor of leisure. Um, it gets great responses at parties. Um, uh, but we we look at this idea that we are even in our culture. You know, we were founded. This country was founded by Puritans, and the Puritan culture was one of great productivity and and focus on work now and play later, you know, that Puritan work ethic underpinning. And even though now we live in a society where we really have freedom of religion and, you know, a lot of us don't think about the influence of the Puritans on our culture, uh, we still very much have that underpinning of work and appearing to be productive. The idea that we can't just relax or, you know, we're... I see in my undergraduate students today, they're more likely to be okay with, you know, I didn't do anything this weekend. I I did nothing. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. But if you ask somebody of my generation, and I'm Gen X, we're much more likely to say, oh, well, I did this and this and this. Like, we have have this productivity push. uh, And as a result, I think we're really wearing ourselves down uh, because we're not... It's almost, you know, to, to get back to my, my roots of studying stigma, we have a stigma around doing nothing. Uh, and that's not to suggest that recreation and leisure are about doing nothing, but our brains do need to be recreated. They need to be rejuvenated from time to time. And disconnecting, that's, you know, we need to, we need to disconnect. Uh, there are so many devices that we've created, laptops, our phones, our, you know, as I mentioned earlier, our smartwatches were designed, like email, I think, was developed to be a time saver. But I don't know about you, <laughs> the amount of time I spend going through email on a daily basis, it's not saving time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if anything, it's, it's more of a time suck than a, than a time saver. Um, and we, you know, because we're always accessible, Everybody sort of gets irritated, like, oh, I sent you an email 24 hours ago and you still haven't gotten back to me. My students will tell me that, um, you know, here they are, many of them are away from home for school, and their parents text them. And if they don't get back to their parents within 15 minutes, then there's a concern, like, what's wrong? What happened to you? We're connected all the time, and it's just not healthy. Mm. You, you say you're seeing a change in the next generation. The, 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 some of your some of your students come in and say, "I did nothing." They they don't have shame about that. Yeah, it, it's it's less. There's less stigma around it. Uh, there's still the giggle. You know, the classroom will sort of respond with a an undercurrent of, oh, "You didn't do anything this weekend." And you know, so I I think that happens more often than it used to when I first started teaching in the college classroom. Uh, people say that with more pride, um, but as I say, there is still the giggle. Um, so, yeah, I think we are seeing a shift in that regard. And this effort with the Nature and Human Health Group as well, and with some of the collaborations I've built with people here at UHealth, uh, we're seeing more physicians dig into, all right, how do we incorporate recreation and leisure into more of our patients' lives? Because we see so many people, chronic stress is having such a negative effect on our overall health. Uh, that I think physicians are be- beginning to, to lean into these ideas of more complementary tools to keep people out of health, you know, chronic healthcare facilities uh, or away from chronic disease. So we're, we're definitely seeing that the pendulum start to swing in the other direction to value recreation and leisure as a preventive healthcare tool. Um, and as I say, I think young people are, I'm seeing it in some of our college students as well. But, uh, it's starting to take root. Yeah, and maybe this is the Puritan in me coming out, but I, uh, the definition of nothing would be important here, right? If you're binge-watching something all weekend, that's different than you went out and hiked or something. Right, yeah, that's true. And, and, and sometimes the students might, when they say nothing, um, they might be referring to, I just didn't do any schoolwork. 
you know, I disconnected from school. We right now at the University of Utah, for instance, are on our spring break. And I know some people who don't benefit from the academic calendar look at the breaks uh, that students receive and faculty as well and are kind of like, why do you need a break? You've been in school for eight weeks. That's not a big deal. But the amount of cognitive focus it takes uh, especially for young people, I think they need that that reprieve. They need to disconnect for a little while. Um, and for that matter, as a faculty member, it's nice to be able to catch up on grading and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, we, we we do see that. There was something else I was going to say as well, but I lost I lost track of it. Maybe I'll come back later. Yeah, yeah it probably will. Um, <laughs> we, we might have to take a break in the program, but it, uh, it'll, it'll come back to you. Uh, in fact, uh, we're, we're about due for break, so let's let's take a break. Okay. And uh, when we come back, um, I want to talk about uh, stigmas and barriers uh, to, to, to nature. You do some study in this area, I think. Um, we are talking with uh, Professor Dorothy Schmaltz, Interim Chair and Associate Professor, University of Utah Department of Parks and Recreation and Tourism, one of the leaders of the group Nature and Human Health Utah. We'll have more following this. Spanish language programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at globalengagement.usu.edu. Support also comes from the USU Kane College of the Arts, presenting the USU Guitar, Bass, and Drums Festival on March 16th, featuring the Mike Stern Band, bass, drum, and songwriting clinics starting at 10.30 a.m., a panel discussion at 2.30, and a performance in the Russell Wallace Performance Hall at 7.30 p.m. Details at cca.usu.edu. Science tells us mountains are giant piles of rock formed millions of years ago. But that's not all they are. How can I look at the mountain before me and say that's not alive? It just seems kind of odd that we don't consider them to be these large creatures that are just right in front of us. (laughs) When mountains were gods, that's next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're uh, talking with uh, Dorothy Schmaltz, who's interim chair and associate professor in the Utah University of Utah Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism. She's one of the leaders of uh, the group Nature and Human Health uh, Utah. It's a collaborative group comprised of scholars, educators, practitioners, community members, sharing ideas and implementing solutions in this area of the link between nature and physical, emotional, and mental uh, health. Uh, so, Professor Schmaltz, we were talking uh, before the break. Uh, you, you mentioned the Yeti parties. You say, hey, I'm a doctor of leisure. And that <laughs> gets a response. Um, <laughs> so we talked about, uh, you know, recreation. I think we get our, our minds around that, Re- the, you know, the, the root of recreate. You know, you get away from your life, recreate. Um, leisure. How do you find leisure? Oh, wow. Um Leisure to me, oh, you, you blindsided me a little bit. There are so many ways we define leisure. But to me, with well, historically, you're getting me into my philosophy class here. Historically, people have break, break leisure down into activity. Uh, but when we really think about that critically, activities and what we find enjoyable differ for different people. Some people really enjoy sitting down and doing some knitting. Other people really like getting out in the garden. Still other people like going and playing a sport, while other people might enjoy getting out, going hunting or fishing. Uh, so to define it by activity is, is very limiting. We also talk about it as time, which I think you know, today we're, are, we're never really away from our jobs. We're never really away from doing, you know, from being connected somehow. Uh, we talk about it as experience, um, but oftentimes I direct students toward the idea of leisure as a state of mind. What is the quality of life or the state of being that we achieve when we engage in activities that are free of evaluation, free of obligation, are truly intrinsically motivated, um, and some, oh, I know what I was going to talk about earlier. Sometimes it, they might be compensatory. So if we are engaged in something either physical or incredibly cognitive, you know, cognitively um, engaging at work, sometimes sitting down and binge watching something on the weekend is exactly what our bodies need to achieve that state of 
that state of mind that we get from leisure that can really recreate our, you know, our cognitive state and our physical state. Um, that said, research is beginning to show that the more, when we experience a challenge in our leisure, when we are, um, chicks at Mahai, may he rest in, pay, rest in peace, um, Mahalia Csikszentmihalyi, who is kind of the founder of the positive psychology field as well, it started, or his um, model is called flow, and may, many of your listeners may have heard of that concept of flow. We talk about it, that runners will get into a state of flow when they're running. Uh, and he contended that that state of flow, which can be the most beneficial of leisure states, uh, can only be achieved when your skill and your challenge, the, like the distance you're running, if we're talking about runner's high, the distance you're running or the challenge of the kind of run that you're doing is matching your fitness level, so your skill. And then you can achieve that state of flow. Um, so to just do something that's totally simplistic or doesn't really engage you either physically or cognitively probably is less likely to to reward you with that state of mind that we look for when we talk about leisure. So that's a really long answer to your question. Yeah, no, in- interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. There you yeah. go. Yeah. By the way, do you, uh, you tell people you're a professor of leisure, do you get any, you get any Puritan pushback? Uh, that's not productive, you know? About about leisure, yeah, like I mean, I'm studying leisure. leisure. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I get pushed back all the time. I think everybody in our field does, um, and we, I think we kind of, we probably exhaust ourselves with the amount of uh, stereotype, if you will, that when we say we're in the Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism, or that we have doctors, you know, that our degrees are leisure or what have you. I, a lot of people, I think it's safe to say, don't get that we are an academic discipline and we do, you know, confer graduate degrees and our students get jobs. Like this is a career path. People make careers out of this. Here uh, in the state of Utah, for instance, we're the first state that has the governor's office of outdoor recreation. So we have representatives stalking the halls of power on, you know, in the state house advocating for and representing outdoor recreation as a viable economic driver within the state. Um, so, yeah, we get a lot of a lot of sort of pushback and people misunderstand what it is that we do. And we get mistaken for campus recreation services, <laughs> not to dismiss the value mm-hmm. of campus recreation services. Yeah. But we are an academic discipline and we're conducting research and seeking grant funding and, and everything that they do over in chemical engineering. So, mm. yeah. Uh, you mentioned the economy, of course, a big part of the, you know, the nature, big part of the economy in, in Utah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is big business. It is. It's, it's a huge driver for the state. Um, we have an incredible uh, tourism component to the state. Uh, and, you know, just with the millions of acres of public lands that we have between the national parks, the state parks, and then our Bureau of Land Management um, land, people come from all over the world to visit our resources here in Utah. We're really world-renowned for that. Um, And one of the big topics of conversation uh, among locals today, as well as the growth that we're seeing and the amount of industry that is coming in, perhaps primarily from California, we talk about, you know, Silicon Slopes, what have you, Uh, but uh, a lot of those organizations use outdoor recreation and the availability of the resources and the opportunities here in the state as recruitment tools to bring people from whatever, wherever that organization's home base is to the new home base here in Utah. Um, in fact, there's some data that says even among, I think it's some high percentage, 80-some-odd percent um, of people who were received offers elsewhere chose to stay in Utah, even if the pay was lower, because of the quality of life that the outdoor recreation opportunities provide here in Utah. Mm. I want to talk about accessibility. In this op-ed piece that we've been referencing, uh, you and your co-authors ask, is access to benefits of nature for human health accessible to all Utahns? And you say the answer is no, or at least not yet. So what are some of the barriers to access? Um, you know, we see it all the time that green space yields gentrification. Uh, so whenever, you know, a park is built or an area is improved somehow, it usually incorporates some sort of green space, and that makes it very appealing. And so it drives the 
prices up for a particular area uh, when a green space or a park is planned. Um, in you know, here I'm standing here looking out my window at the west side of the valley, um, and while there are parks over in the west side of Salt Lake, for instance, or West Valley, um, we see that the so let's preface that the west side, of course, is a little bit lower socioeconomic status, and we see more diverse racial and ethnic populations over there. Um, they do have access to little pocket parks, and they are available. But when you look at the number of people who are living in an area who would be within 10 minutes, for instance, of that park, and we see proximity as being a big predictor of whether or not a population or a person uses a park, if we have a smaller space with a high population, they really don't have the same access. And we saw that a lot during the pandemic as well. If there wasn't space to so you know, to physically distance from other people, people felt as though they had lower access. Uh, there's also issues around transportation. If they don't have, you know, walkable access to a park, do they know how to get to a park? Do they have the time to get to, you know, for instance, a lot of these canyons here on the east side are inaccessible to people on the west side. Even if they were to get there, are they from a culture or did their parents or their grandparents know what to do in the canyons, where the trailheads are. These are things that can be very intimidating and off-putting to a population if they don't really know where to begin. I mentioned, you know, the fact that I have a, my new, my boyfriend, new is relative, but um, is introducing me to hiking and backpacking. Without his influence, I wouldn't be doing that, but he knows how to do it. He knows how to be comfortable, and he's showing me those ropes. But without that, I I don't think I would have pursued it at all. So I think about that with these populations whose, you know, generations before them didn't do the things that some of us are more accustomed to that we were introduced to when we were children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's a big driver. Yeah, yeah. You also write in the op-ed that mountain bikes, ski passes, entry fees, national parks are beyond the means of many. Yeah. Yeah, some outdoor recreation opportunities are, they're expensive. You know, skiing is such a great example. It's its inaccessible financially for a lot of people, and people don't have any idea where to begin. There are opportunities for people to maybe get inexpensive uh, skis or, you know, ski lessons to learn how to do this stuff, but if it's not something you're raised with, it's not something you're really interested in seeking. Uh, and there's also the possibility that people don't don't know that there's a question that could be asked, let alone that there's an answer to that question, or who to ask to get an answer to that question. So, um, yeah, there's there was there are also sort of cultural stereotypes. Is that activity for me? Would I be welcome there if? I were to go up on a ski slope or go hiking or backpacking in a canyon, you know, how, how safe would I feel? There are issues of, of safety. There are issues of um, you just feeling as though I would enjoy it or would I, you know, be welcome in that environment that also prevent people from seeking it. So uh, how, to, how to overcome some of these barriers that I'm sure is being, you know, research and ideas being floated? Yeah, there are, I mean, it's it's a complicated cyclical problem of some of the social determinants of health, uh, but there are introductory programs that are with funding. There are a bunch of organizations that will provide transportation for groups uh, to get access to some of these places, um, to engage with some of these activities with similar others. You know, that seems to be a big player. You know, will there be people who look like me, who believe what I believe, who, um, you know, value what I value? Will they be out there too? And so to cr- find similar others and introduce people to a new activity and show them, look, people who look like you are doing this too. And, you know, you're at the same interest level, you're the same ability level, and I'm going to show you how to get some access to it, and that'll help you, you know, get entree into it. Um, so, you know, they're, they're with support and with efforts like that, 
uh, we're starting to see some shift in that regard. I think also the more we see physicians advocating for it and we see it become more of a valued part of the American culture, I think the more we'll start to see equitable distribution of resources across socioeconomic statuses and racial and ethnic populations. Mm -hmm. We just have about uh, two or three minutes left in the conversation, Uh, and I... uh I looked up, uh, you know, a few of your studies, your articles. Um, this one jumped out at me. I want to make sure I get this in. This is from 2006, so it's a while ago. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, the, the title will say it all. Girly Girls and Manly Men, Children's Stigma Consciousness of Gender in Sports and Physical Activities. You're talking about, um, you know, social rules uh, of gender play a prominent role in leisure, especially with sport and physical activity. Uh, apparently, some of them, I'm just reading the abstract description, um, the, Apparently, the outcome of this study was that uh, boys' uh, you know, scope is a, a bit restricted, I guess, because of stereotypes. I guess some things, you know, uh, other boys would say, no, you can't be doing that, I guess. Yeah, that's funny. You should tap into that article. That was my first—I guess it was not quite my first article. But, yeah, it, it, that re- has received a lot of play, and I credit the title for that. Y- yeah, um, yeah. That was part of my dissertation, which actually—the dissertation was called Tomboys and Sissies. Uh, which I think summarizes the finding that I present in that article better than anything. I went into that study with the idea, you know, just building on the girls' project from the 1970s, of girls should be able to do anything, but they're limited, you know, sort of building off of Title IX. Um, And what I found, as you indicate, Tom, is that actually women have, girls and women have a lot more freedom and a lot more liberty in the activities that they do with lower risk to their gender identity than boys and men do. And I think that has to do a lot with our cultural value of masculinity and what it is to be a boy or a man. Um, and the, the latitudes are much narrower. The scope is much narrower before you cross that threshold into not a man, not being appropriate by our cultural social norms. Uh, and so, it's, it, as I say, it's, it's a lot easier to be a tomboy Girls and women can be tomboys a lot more easily than boys and men can be sissies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was that that inspired a lot of my stigma-related research. And that sometimes we see the reverse. You know, we think that these positions of privilege are the valued, you know, standard white male Christian are you know what we should aspire to be, but actually pushing or pushing against those. Limitate, limitations put social status at risk, and we, we see that profoundly with boys and men and their allowance for behavior without losing their gender identity. It's about a minute left. We could probably fit this one in. This one, so this is a recent one. Um, try not to make waves. Managing gender discrimination in outdoor recreation. So you you study talk to some women in the field of outdoor adventure recreation. Yeah, uh, that would, that's a really cool study with a colleague of mine at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. Uh, she did her dissertation looking at professional uh, women who have sought professions in traditionally male outdoor recreation activities, including mountain guides, uh, prof- or competitive kayaking, that kind of thing. Um, and in her dissertation, she asked, or in her study, she asked, have you experienced uh, sexism or even... Um, you know, assault or, you know, what have you in your field. And every single one of them provided an example and then very quickly backpedaled and apologized or made excuse for the behavior. And I was like, that's, she didn't really get into that in the dissertation, but I was like, that's an article. We need to write that up. Um, And that's where that trying not to make waves came from, because so many of the women identified a very specific and could capture it with great specificity, but then very quickly said, but you know, and came up with some excuse to justify the behavior. And we see that in women across all professions, that if they experience sexism in the workplace and they they volunteer it, they will oftentimes backpedal and say, but, you know, I understand because of this, that, or the other. So it's a very interesting pattern of behavior. Yeah, the, the distressing, right? The more, a lot more work to be, to be done uh, yeah. in, in society yeah. as a whole, right? Um, 
Well, yeah. we'll, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. We're talking with uh, Dorothy Schmaltz, Interim Chair, Associate Professor, University of Utah Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism. She's one of the leaders of the group Nature and Human Health Utah, a new collaborative group working on uh, the link between nature and physical, emotional, and mental health. And you can find them at natureandhumanhealthutah.org. Uh, Dorothy Schmaltz, a uh, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. This has been great. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The vast plumbing infrastructure of the Central Utah Project is the culmination of Utah's desires to move water to where we want it to be. Find out how complicated and contentious this endeavor has been. First, this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. By the mid-20th century, the water of the Colorado River and its tributaries became increasingly attractive to Utah's growing population. But there were two big problems. First, this water flowed through a watershed far away from Utah's population center on the Wasatch Front. Second, there were six other western states who had claims on it. The Central Utah Project, or CUP, aimed to tackle the physical challenges of diverting and storing that water while solidifying Utah's claim to its portion. The CUP became the largest water infrastructure project in the history of Utah. The initial proposal in 1939 involved transferring a whopping 1 million acre feet of water, an amount that would be scaled down to about a tenth of that by the project's ratification in 1956. Even so, the ambitious plans would have been unthinkable without the lavish financial and technical support of the Federal Bureau of Reclamation. Construction began shortly after ratification, and by the mid-1960s, planning was underway for the project's largest and most complex section. The Bonneville unit would intercept the flows of 23 streams and rivers to channel and pump them through 37 miles of tunnels, pipelines, and aqueducts, flooding some areas and draining others. All told, the scheme would stretch from the Wasatch Mountains to Vernal, all to collect store, and transfer Colorado River Basin water across a major watershed to the Wasatch Front. To do so would require, quite literally, moving mountains. The plan was not without its critics. Political challenges arose alongside technical ones. Eastern congresspeople, environmentalists, and sport anglers all took aim at the expensive, ecologically disruptive plans. Farmers and ranchers in the rural Uinta Basin were not keen to send their water to cities over the mountains. Most significantly, the Bonneville unit depended on water owned by the Ute Indian tribe, which was justifiably protective of its water rights. But with the promise of two additional units built for their people's benefit, the Ute tribe gave its approval. By 1968, CUP planners, despite obstacles and complex maneuvering, had laid the blueprint for a system of plumbing that moved water across the state on an unprecedented scale. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Spanish language programming on UPR is made possible by our members and the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at globalengagement.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.